All right, so let's get into it because I could keep doing that all night long. We're going to be in a study. James and I are going to be taking us through the next eight weeks through First and Second Thessalonians. So if you've got a Bible, you should. You need a Bible in your hand so you know that we're not making this stuff up. And so we're going to be in First Thessalonians near the end of the Bible, um, right before uh, Hebrews, First and Second Thessalonians. And so it's toward the end. If you can open up there, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let me use my phone. Let me pray, and then we will kick off the next two months. Jesus, just, um, just thankful for this book. Thank you for, um, Holy Spirit, thank you for inspiring it to be written. Thank you for... The, um, the exhortation, the encouragement, and the challenge that it contains. We ask that, um, that you would be sovereign over not only tonight, but the next eight weeks as, as we endeavor to, to understand you better and, and uh, your desire for us now better. And so just ask for your, um, just your blessing over the study. I ask for the ability to teach. Ask for all of us for the ability to learn. We seek one thing um, here at God Speak, one thing here on Sunday nights, which is to glorify you. And so would you draw us closer um, to you tonight? Would you be more high and lifted up in our hearts and in our minds that we would see you more clearly, that we would be more endeared to you, that we would have a love for others that is otherworldly? And so we just ask for um, your inspiration. We ask that you would minister to us each individually as only you can. I certainly cannot. And so, God, we, uh, we rely on you. We trust you. We need you. I need you. We need you. And so just ask for your favor, for your kids tonight and moving forward. We love you, praise you, can't wait to see you again. In Jesus' name, amen. So First Thessalonians, what I want to do is introduce us to the author, talk about some of the characters, talk about the church that it's being written to, and then actually at the end, I'll kind of give you some of the overarching themes that we're going to get into, because as I said, James and I are going to be tackling this every other week. We're going to be me, him, me, him, me, him. We're going to be walking all the way through first, which is five chapters, 1 Thessalonians, and then 2 Thessalonians, which is three. And so we're going to take an eight-week study that will get us into um, March, and then we'll have um, something new after that. But I wanted to, I, I can't, I cannot start a book written by Paul without introducing him. I can't. And, and I, I do that with almost every author. I think you guys know that. I, I love to get into the historical backdrop. I, I love that the Bible is enti- entirely historical, though it's not only a history book. Um, it's an inspired book, but it's also entirely historical. Um, I, I'm fascinated by the, the practicality of the people that God used. I, I love the fact that he used the best and the worst and the least and the most of them to inspire scriptures. I mean, you think some of the very little people that are in there, you think of some of the big great-grand people. Um, and, and the author, as he says, as you take a look, it's, it's very clear. He says, Paul. Um, and, and Paul is an amazing testimony. And I, and I love doing this. I've done it in sermons past. If you've heard it before, you're going to hear it again. Um, I, I can never go by starting without introducing Paul because he's such, to me at least, such a testament to how God can change everything about someone in the blink of an eye. And so Paul, as some of you may know, some of you may not, was not born Paul. He was born Saul of Tarsus. He was an Israelite. 
He was a Roman citizen by birthright, which he brought up at times in his writings. So he reminded people as he was writing to them, hey, like I'm one of you. It'd be like, think of it like this. It's like, I'm from the Midwest. If you got a letter from me, it'd be like, hey, I was in Thousand Oaks for 18 years. You kind of be like, okay, well, he kind of knows a little bit about us, right? As opposed to like, hey, I'm this guy from Minnesota. You're like, eh, it's cold. I don't know you, okay? Right? But when someone introduces themselves and says, hey, look, I'm an Israelite, the Jews listen. He says, I'm a Roman by birthright. The Gentiles listen. The Romans certainly listen. He was a Pharisee. Now he's got the ears of the religious people. If you don't know, the Pharisees were the all-stars of religion. They were all American, if you will, at being religion. Like the best thing you've done for Jesus was junior varsity compared to the Pharisees. Like you remember that cute Bible verse you had to memorize? You like struggled all week for like either confirmation or youth group. These guys memorized entire books of the Bible. Have you tried that? Anyone recite numbers for me right now? Some of you didn't even know there was a book called Numbers in the Bible, okay? They would recite the entire thing. Try that this week. Go for it. I can't. I'm not saying I can. The Pharisees were all stars. They were amazing at religion, but it didn't save them. Amazing. Varsity religious guys. They were responsible for keeping the law. In fact, they were responsible for coming up with law to keep people far away from even coming close to breaking the law. So they came up with laws so that you wouldn't even get near the actual law. Some people are endeared to him a little bit. Like, and there is a sweet side to the, the Pharisee life is that they truly did care about the word of God. They truly did want it protected and kept and, and revered. But what happened is that selfishness and self-gain came out of it. And so they began to branch into legalism. They added to the law, which was never part of God's intent. He was a Pharisee. He says this in Philippians 3, 5. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, the stock of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin, which was a prestigious tribe. It gave Israel its first king. So it's like not only saying like, hey, you know, I'm from Thousand Oaks, but hey, I, I also, I went to this church. I, I, I lived in your neighborhood. I understand what you're going through. I realize everyone's freaked out. There's water falling from the sky. Like I've been there. I know what you're going through. He's, he's, he's getting their attention. So he's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. He says, and concerning the law, he was a Pharisee. He says elsewhere, he says that in front of the law, before the law, he was blameless. Paul was really, really good at religion. He said, I didn't break it at all. He said, I was blameless. You hold me up against the hundreds of laws in the Old Testament? He goes, I'm blameless before that. Blameless. He's studying under a guy by the name of Gamaliel, who was a leading authority in the Sanhedrin, which was the religious court, if you will. He was a brilliant mind. He had a commanding knowledge of both philosophy and law and religion. He would have what is probably by modern um, times, he would likely have a philosophy degree, multiple law degrees, seminary degree. He had it all. Like he, he had four, five, six PhDs. He could outwit, outsmart, outcommunicate anyone. That was Saul. And he was also one of Christianity's most zealous, most zealous enemies. He didn't meet Jesus in his personal ministry when Jesus was on earth. He never met Jesus face to face on earth. But he did meet Jesus and everything changed. But he was one of Christianity's most zealous enemies. He oversaw the stoning of Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr. In Acts 7.59, it says, And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive 
my spirit. Acts 8, 1 through 3 says, now Saul was consenting to his death. See, a lot of times the Pharisees stayed away from the mess. Pharisee means separated one. They were really good at being separated from people. By the way, that's not what holy means. Holy means set apart. Jesus was holy, but he wasn't separated. He was the opposite. He was the antithesis. He came into this mess. He didn't stay away from it. Pharisees were really good. They would stay off in their stuffy apartments and their stuffy offices, books, floor to ceiling, surrounded by people that agreed with them. But, but Saul, he would walk down to where they were killing Christians and stand and watch. He loved them. He hated Christians. He hated the gospel. He hated that the Messiah claimed to have come. It says, now Saul was consenting to his death. He was there. It says, and at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Entering every house. No search and seizure laws, no law enforcement, no protection. He entered every house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. He was the type of Pharisee that, unlike hardly any Pharisee, he loved getting his hands dirty in the persecution of the church. He didn't just talk about the church. He went out and took the church by its neck. That was Saul. Acts 9 says, then Saul. He's going through. He's persecuting the church. He's doing everything he can to end this gospel, to end this new movement. It says, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So he's headed out on a trip. He heads in to get the authority to do something. He says, so that if he found any who were of the way, capital W, any who are of the way, Jesus came and said, I am the way. And this was a derogatory term. Those those weird way people. If I come across any of those, he says, whether man or woman, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He says, I need the authority that when I come across these freaks, these Christians, I can drag them from their home. I can hog time and throw them in a cart and bring them back. And they gave him the authority to do so. That was Saul. He loved it. He was just, yes, yes. Wax it, sign it, yes. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone. Suddenly, a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Remember when your parents said your name twice? Remember that? Some of you was last week. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He could have said the church. He could have said Christians. He could have said people of the way. What do he say? Me, you mess with the church, you get Jesus. He cracks open heaven. 
the light radiating from him. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Saul said, <laughs> I love this. He's, he's probably like peed his pants a little bit or something. Like your mind goes to mush. He said, who are you, Lord? You get that? Hey, hey, what's your name, Mark? Who are you, Lord? Right? Some of us know, right? But we still, we still tussle. You know who he is, and Lord is a big term. That means sovereign. That means over all affairs. He says, who are you, Lord? He knows who he is. He's on his face. He's, he's melting in front of Jesus now. Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goad. So he saw trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Jesus had every right to spend a little time talking about what Saul had done. Did he not? He had every right to bring up a few examples why are you persecuting me, Saul? And he says, what am I to do? And he says, go forward. New year, new semester. Some of you are just bringing a lot of crap with you. And Jesus shows up and says, it's not about what you've done. It's about what you're being called to do. Jesus cracks open heaven, has every right to pummel Saul with his history. A terrorist. He was an ancient terrorist to the church. And Jesus says, go forward. Some of you this semester, will you just heed these words? Just go forward this semester. It's not that your past didn't happen. It's not that it doesn't hurt. It's not that people haven't hurt you or things don't still sting or or cause pain. But can we move forward this year? Go forward. What am I going to do? He said, you'll know when you'll get there. Jesus says, it's not about what you've done. It's about what I'm calling you to do now. A fresh start, a clean semester, a new year. He says, arise and go to the city. You will be told what to do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground. And when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. When you meet Jesus, everything changes. This was a terrorist that met Jesus and changed forever. It's not about what you've done. It's about what Jesus is now calling you to do. And so if you're one of those who has a radical testimony, Jesus showed up and smacked you on the back of the head, we praise Jesus for radical testimony. If you have a boring testimony like me and a guy named Timothy, grew up in the church, don't really know when you became a Christian, mom and dad love Jesus, all your siblings love Jesus, my dad was a pastor, it's like, people are like, oh, were you a drug addict, alcohol? Like, oh, yeah, well, not boring. Come up with a cooler story next time. I don't have it. Some of us are Paul's in our testimony, radical, game-changing, lightning, heaven, like just the whole gamut. Some of us are like this guy, Timothy, we're going to meet, sort of like, you're like, oh yeah, you had a great faith, your mom and your grandma. And Timothy's like, hey, thanks. Right? We praise Jesus for radical testimonies. We praise Jesus for boring testimonies. 
And so he set out, and then he became a bulwark for the church, and he just became a pillar for the church, this Paul guy. He went on three long missionary journeys. These were months, years. It's not like what we do. It's not, it's not like the, the three-day mission trips, right? I'm not bagging on it, but like when we say missions, we're like, oh, cool, like he went to Tijuana. That's great. Like, no, he went out. This was a life. He went out on three long missionary journeys throughout the Roman Empire. He preached the gospel. He planted churches. He encouraged the church. He was stoned. Like, how many of you, you get stoned? You're like, God doesn't want me to be a missionary, right? Some of you are like, I stubbed my toe. God doesn't want to be a missionary, right? Stoned, shipwrecked, not once, not twice, three times, right? Three times. Like, if, if the engine stalls on the way to Catalina, we're like, get me out of here. No way. No, shipwrecked three times, bitten by a snake. I don't do snakes. That's when I cut and run. I, I don't do snakes. I hate snakes. Freak me out. Go to the zoo. Kids want to go to the snake. No, no. Let's go look at the rabbits again. They don't even have rabbits. I don't care. It's just not the snakes. He wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books far more than any other New Testament writer. He didn't write the most in terms of words, but he wrote the most in terms of books. And one of them is this, this first epistle. Paul to the Thessalonians. And so he says, Paul, the second name is Silvanus. Some of you may know him as Silas, a longtime companion of Paul. He was with Paul on his second missionary journey. He was imprisoned and freed from Paul in the Philippian jail in Acts 16. How many of you guys know that story? Paul and Silas in jail. I love this. I'm so cliche. One of my favorite bands, one of our favorite bands, Thrice, has a song called um, and the earth will shake, and it's all about this scene. It's all about being in prison with Paul and Silas and, and the jailer falling asleep. And then God shakes and he rumbles the earth, and everyone is freed, and their shackles are broken, and the, the guard wakes up, and he realizes that all the doors have swung open, so what does he do? Pulls out his sword. So I'm gonna kill myself. Why? Because they're gonna kill me. And there's Paul and Silas who were singing and praising, praying, praying, just over there, hey, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Put that away. We're here. We're hanging good what's going on jailer looks around ready to kill himself say yeah we didn't go anywhere jailer falls on his face what do i need to do to be saved paul was that guy converting people in prison like he was probably that guy that man when they would chain some roman guard to him the roman guards were like trying to get out of it like that guy's gonna talk my ear off again paul is just probably a slumped older rabbi Hey, Maximus, come on in here. Are you on for 12 hours again? It's great. I got some things I need to talk to you about. Like, oh, I'll do double for you next week if you go get yourself with him. He was that guy. He made the most out of every minute. And some of that time was spent with Silas. When Paul first came to Thessalonica, that's where this church resides, Silas was there. It says Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, Timothy was an interesting cat. Worked on the church staff, though. We don't necessarily believe he was a pastor. He could have been admin. He could have been deacon. He could have been one of the servants. Could have been a big-time usher. He was kind of like, you know, Mike, handing out Bibles, right? A resident of Elystra, a city in the province of Galatia. We see that he had a Greek father. He had a Jewish mother. And he grew up in the faith. Some of you take heart that, like, if you have a boring testimony and you... You, you always feel a little bummed or you go to a conference, you hear a video and it's like God rescued you from drug addiction or something crazy or you were an atheist witchcraft practicing like 
Mormon. I don't know. Like you were just so far gone. And then all of a sudden you're just so, and some of you are like, I went to Sunday school my whole life. Like I, I went to a church that they gave out bars. We had medals. It was weird. Like Lutheran. It was like one year of perfect attendance at Sunday school. And I lived literally 40 steps from the church. We lived in a parsonage. Like it wasn't hard. Even I was sick. I was like, I could do 40 steps. And I would go, and they would get bars year after year, and you'd hang it, right? I walked around like a pompous little jerk, like eight years of perfect attendance, you know? Like, it just grew up here like, when did, when did you meet Jesus? I'm like, I have no clue, no idea. Drugs? No. Alcoholism? No. I wasn't a Paul in my testimony. It's a Timothy who constantly had to be told, yo, be strong. Be strong, Timothy. Like, have some guts. Like, have some fortitude. He grew up in the faith, says that he knew the scriptures. His mother and his grandmother taught him that. He was a trusted companion and associate of Paul. He accompanied Paul on many missionary journeys. In fact, Paul had sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on this church. You're going to see that in 1 Thessalonians 3 in two weeks. He had sent him back there to check on this church. So Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, Paul authoring it, they knew these these three gentlemen. They had gone, they had loved, they had cared for this church. But it's interesting, this church did not start off like most church plants you would want. It was founded by Paul on his second missionary journey. We see that in Acts 17. After being imprisoned in Philippi, he was miraculously freed, as we said, and then he was kicked out of the city. Paul was a, a big fan of just getting kicked out of places. He caused riot and revival. He went in there and he got kicked out. He would pick himself up and go right back in. He got kicked out of that city. Then he came to Thessalonica, which is a very prosperous capital in the province of Macedonia. It's in northern Greece. You can still go there today. It's the second largest city in Greece, second to Athens. And Athens is southern part of Greece, Thessalonica up in the north. And I looked it up a little bit, and it was interesting that it was, it was located at an intersection of two major Roman roads, one leading from Italy eastward, Ignatia Way, and the other from the Danube up to the Aegean. And so it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of like being right there at the crux of the 101 and the 405, just bustling with commerce. Everyone can get there. It may take eight hours, but like everyone can get there because it's just this intersection of commerce and trade and culture and militaries and and all this sort of stuff would come through here. So it was a bustling city. Great place to be honest. Great place to plant a church. They weren't a fan of the gospel, as we've seen. And so he was only, this is where it gets a little weird. He was only in the city possibly as few as three weeks, possibly as many as three months. Historians disagree. Some say three because somewhere in the Bible it says that he preached for three Sabbaths. Some would say that because tithing was on a monthly basis and he had received multiple tithes from the church that it was more like three months and they just referenced the last three sermons. Not really sure, but you just need to know that we can all agree that like three weeks to three months, not a lot of time to plant a church, yeah? Like most, most plant, you know, church plants these days, like they spend three months setting up their Facebook, okay? They don't really like, it doesn't, it's not up and running and rocking and rolling in, in three weeks, even three months, He was only there a short amount of time, and then he was forced out by the enemies of the gospel. Nothing like starting a church and then having the leaders leave. They had to leave. They didn't want to. But they were forced out, and so they traveled to Athens. They went south. Paul sent Timothy back, because Paul gets worried. He's a good pastor. He gets worried. It was a young church, a church that wasn't there for the public ministry of Jesus. Worried because 
Surprise, surprise. I know we don't have this problem now, but young people are susceptible to false teachings. Good thing we've totally gotten past that, right? That went off like a lead balloon. Terrific. (laughs) Paul sends Timothy back to check on the church, to serve and minister to the church. And he wanted to check on their faith for fear that false teachers may be creeping in, that false teachings may have infiltrated the young congregation. Timothy returns to Paul. Guess what he says? It's going great. It's actually going great. They're strong. They're alive. They're thriving. The church in Thessalonica is a beautiful thing. And he's excited. And Paul's got to be relieved. If you know his ministry, it doesn't always go that way. And so he starts, he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, he says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of our God the Father. Paul remembers them in his heart. When he thinks of them, his heart is grateful for what they've accomplished, for what they're doing and what they have managed to do with such a short time with him as their head pastor. He's grateful for what's going on in Thessalonica. Church didn't start under ideal circumstances. None does. Yet it was strong and full of life. But here's the thing. I'm going to give us a little bit of a preview of a couple rocks we're going to hit, a couple places we're going to skip as we go through this study. They weren't perfect. So you're going to be like, man, this must have been on fire, rocking, all things going well. Because we, we, we kind of almost idolize the first century church, and we forget that they're a complete mess, unlike us, where we have it all together. Another lead balloon. Terrific. Okay, and so <laughs> they had it ro- they, they didn't have it all together. They didn't. It's not that they had it all It's not that they even all thought highly of Paul. We're going to see in a later chapter that he has to defend himself against his ministry and slander and false accusations. This wasn't a perfect church. It wasn't that they were all morally impeccable. We're going to see Paul that he had to strongly warn them against the failings in regard to sexual impurity. Something no one struggles with today, right? Not going to have anything to learn from this old book. It's not that because they were all completely accurate in doctrine. Paul will have to correct some of their wrong beliefs as well. We're going to see that. But you need to know that the church in Thessalonica was young. It was hungry. It was thriving. It was full of life. It was a young church. But they were doing a lot of things right. And Paul was grateful. But here's the application for some of you because you struggle with this. And look, I commend you. The stats are all over the place. Some of the best I've read says about 13% of college students are in school, or are in church. 13% of college students are in school. That's actually probably true too, okay? <laughs> just, just cruise the coast on a Monday morning, okay? Just, eh, class maybe. <laughs> about 13, I, I, I read recently a, a new stat that says, of the, so of the percentage, that's of, of all college students. Of the students that came out of high school who were active members of their church, Okay, so now you got a new 100% of just people going to church. Only 30% of them, 70% bounce on church. So I, I seriously, I can, I'm grateful for you guys. You're doing the freshmen, the sophomores. I didn't get back into church after my pathetic time of rebellion. 
I didn't get back into the church till like junior year at best. For those of you that are in church, whether it's here at another fellowship, you're in, you're in small groups, you're at Kalu, you're in InterVarsity at Channel Islands, you're doing a small group here, you're doing your big gatherings here, as the Bible calls us to be in small fellowship and large gatherings, you're doing that in college. Like you want to be countercultural, go to church in college. As you go to college, you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rebel, I'm going to drink. Everyone drinks. That's not, it's not rebelling. I'm going to be promiscuous. So is the majority of the people that go to college. You want to be crazy? You want to be countercultural, do something radical? Go to church in college. You want to be part of that, that small percentage of people doing something crazy? You guys are doing it. So we're grateful. Because I wasn't in church as a freshman or sophomore in college. And I've been in church my whole life, and I even dropped off. I'm grateful for you guys. Like, this is, this is the cream of the crop. Don't get too big on yourselves. We'll work on that later. But, like, this is kind of the cream of the crop in terms of colleges, yeah? So congrats. Like, thir- you're the 13%. Like, that won't be a meme on Facebook, but we'll figure it out, you know? 13% or it's a bad number, but it's the best one I could find. The church is not perfect. And so many, perhaps some of your friends drop off, and you've heard this. Church is full of hypocrites. Church failed me. Church is broken. I've got this issue with the church. I've got that issue with the church. The church is not perfect. The difference is that the church is being perfected. It's a big difference. You know, I joke with people, they're like, oh, church is full of hypocrites. I'm like, I know, we got room for another one. Come on in. Say one thing and do another. Yeah, welcome to being a sinner. The church is not perfect. We are not perfect. I'm going to fail you. James is going to fail you. John and Mike are going to fail you. The church need not be perfect for us to understand that the church is being perfected. Do not allow the imperfections of the church to tear away your gratefulness for the church. Again, preaching the choir because you guys are here. We don't have a choir. We might start one. I'm not sure. But just know that we are being perfected. It says in Hebrews 10, 14, it says, for by once offering, he, that's Jesus, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. I love that because it seems weird. It says he's perfected people who are being sanctified. Sanctification means a process. So guess what? You are perfect in Christ when you're being sanctified. doesn't mean you're perfect. You get that? God sees you as perfect when you are in Christ because now you're cloaked in his righteousness, not our own wickedness. When you take off your robe of weaknesses, you put on Jesus' robe of righteousness. That's how the Bible says, be perfect as your father is perfect. Like, I can't do that, so I guess I shouldn't follow the Bible. When you're in Christ, you are perfect and in a process of being sanctified. God does not have a goal for your life. He does not have a goal for your morality. He has a process for it. You will be in that process until the day Jesus comes back or you go see him. Jesus has a process. When you are in that process, and there's some people ahead of you, I've joked, uh, I'm, in a, I'm in a small group with Pastor Brett, and I asked him if I could say this, I'm not trying to bag on him, but like one time we prayed for his driving habits. I'm like, I can't wait to be where that's the sin I'm dealing with. Like, man, I cut someone off. I'm on a motorcycle. I'm the guy going 90 past you, okay? Like, but, but, but Brett, I fully believe this, and I've, I've talked about it. He is farther down the process of sanctification than I am. And that's, I don't hold that against it. And there's people behind me and I don't look bad on them. God doesn't have a goal for you. He has a process. The church is no different. We're not gonna be awesome. Only Jesus gets to be often and broken people worshiping him. But we are being perfected. 
It's just like that cheesy bumper sticker, like Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. We're not perfect, we're being perfected. We're being made holy, being made set apart. So don't allow the imperfect nature of the church to cause you to stop being thankful for the church. And he says this, it's interesting. He says, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. This is the first time chronologically we see in Paul's writing this trifecta, this this triad, this hat trick, if you will. Faith, love, and hope. But notice what he does. He doesn't place simply emphasis on the virtues. He brings in the connector, the pro- what is produced from those virtues. You see what he did there? So it's not that he says, remembering your ceasing work, your, your, your ceasing, your, your non-ceasing faith, your love, your hope. He says, the work of faith, the labor of love, the patience of hope. Read it in reverse because he sets it up. It's that faith produces work. It's that love produces labor. It's that hope produces patience. Faith produces works. James tells us that a faith, not this James, though he might say the same thing because he'd be agreeing with the Bible. Okay. The book of James tells us that faith without works is dead. It's dead. The classic analogy, I'll go through it real fast, is like, I, I, I have faith in this chair, or this one over here. It's not being, I have faith in that chair. I'm like, okay, that's great. Why don't you sit in it? And I'm good. You, 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 I have faith. I see it's structured. Everything is on. Looks like the screws are on. I have faith. That chair will hold me. James is like, okay, have a seat. No, I'm good. Same thing. I've got a faith in what Jesus is doing, what he can do in you. Okay, have a seat. Let's see it. He even goes so far, don't confuse this, in James, a couple verses later, he says that a faith that doesn't produce works is a faith that can't save. Now, he's not saying that works save you. That's in contradiction to the rest of the New Testament. But what he is saying is that if your, quote, faith, which he's going to argue is not a true faith, doesn't pour out in works, that's not a faith that can save you. Because a saving faith will, by its very nature, produce works. A faith without works is dead. And so Paul loves that they don't just talk about their faith all the time. You can see it. The world can see it. Doesn't mean it's always perfect and good and gushy. But when things get tough, when people need ministering, their faith goes to action and the world sees it. And that's how they have to deal with Jesus now. So he says, love or faith will produce work. He says that love will produce labor. I don't know if you know this. Love is not easy. Contrary to what you see on Pinterest, ladies, marriage isn't like that. Having kids isn't like that. You know, the fuzzy photos and the list of 14 things he'll do to you. Like he's going to love you in 1800 different ways. And you look up, I'm on Pinterest probably more than you ladies because I do it for a living. I'm a social media marketing guy for a living. I've seen that this world of Pinterest and this lovey and okay. That's not what love looks like. Love is a, is a grind. Some of you don't want to hear that, but I'm going to prepare you for marriage and telling you that it's a decision. Greatest act of love ever is Jesus hanging from a cross. Did it feel good? No, it has to be something deeper than feelings. He decided to stay there. Marriage is the same way. It's it's good, it's fluttery, but I'm telling you, it changes, it gets better, it gets deeper, but it freaks people out. 
when they get away from lust. Love causes labor. You have to work at it. Same with kids. I don't know if you know those kids aren't easy. I got three of them. They're crazy little bugger. We're still getting up with Maisie in the middle of the night. She's a year. Get over it, girlfriend. Stop it. <laughs> love has labor. Even in the workforce, we call things, I was thinking about this, we call things labors of love, don't we? A labor of love, like your side job or something you do that you don't have to do, Right? I heard that a lot when I, when I started my first business. People were like, oh, it's cool. So you've got, you know, it's kind of this labor of love because I'm working on the side. I come home from work and guess what I do? I go to work. Why? Because that's what I love to do. It doesn't have to be more work for everyone. It's just, it's built into me. But we call like side jobs or basically things like if you've got a hobby or you shape surfboards or guitars or you, you do drama late at night, even after you get off into a career as an accountant. And they say, oh, it's so cool. You have a labor of love. Why do they call it a labor of love? Because it's something you don't have to do, but you want to. And so ministering to people, pouring out to your friends and caring for them in the hardest of times, it's a labor of love. Love produces labor. You're willing to go through with it out of love. Not that you have to. That's like you're unsaved. Jesus is like, well, if you don't do enough, then you're not getting in. He says, when you love people, you'll labor with them. He says, hope produces patience. I wrote this down. When you live only for this world, you want everything now. When you live only for this world, you want everything now. Why? Because time's ticking. Time's ticking. You better get it now. If you think this is it. If you're an annihilationist and you just think everyone poofs into nothing when you die, you better have all your fun now. You better get what you want now. You better demand things now. You better make and do the things and see the places that you want to go to now. Why? Because this is it. But as we've talked about in series past, when you have an eternal perspective, there's patience. This is a blip. This is a blip. Like, we think it's just, like, forever. Like, oh, man, you're going to look back from eternity and be like, 90 years? Man, it was like sneezing. It was like, it's over. And by the way, every year gets faster after college. I don't know if you know that. Every year, some of you are like, it's taking forever. Don't worry. You'll see. All of a sudden, you'll be 36. Right? You won't even know what happened. Like, I just graduated. I feel fine. 40 now, what? Every year gets faster. You get married, it gets faster. You get kids, it gets faster. You get a career, it gets faster. All the adults, adults are not in their head. The college students are like, I don't think so. I don't know. You'll see. Come talk to me in five years. You'll see. Like, I'm gonna go back to college. I wish it was an eight-year program, right? It gets faster, but we have a patience. Why? Born out of hope. When you have an eternal hope, it creates patience on earth. So these are the things that excites Paul. He, he loves that their faith produced work, that their love produced labor, that their hope produced patience. But how does it do that? He goes right into it. He never leaves us hanging. He says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of our God, Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. How do you know if you're elect? Big discussion in the church. Everyone fights about it. YouTubes have been dedicated to it. Books, back and forth. Here's how you know if you're elect, if you love Jesus. Any questions? Good, we'll move on. (laughs) For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. But the gospel, listen. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit 
and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. The gospel is not merely a matter of words. I I can tell you the arc of the entire Bible in one sentence. The entire thing. That you were created for Jesus' glory, that you rebelled against him, were redeemed on the cross to be reconciled to a holy God unto his second coming. It's the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Now, if you believe that, that you were created for Jesus' glory, that you've rebelled, that Jesus died for you so that you could be reconciled to a holy God until he comes back, you know the gospel. It's a lot, it's, I've done the whole thing, five-part series, gone really deep, taking a look at all that sort of stuff. That's the thrust. It's not the entire, but it's the thrust of the entire Bible. It's the arc of the whole Bible. But there has to be more, or me just saying that would cause every single person in the room to be saved. If you believe that. But it's not simply a matter of words. We don't simply just understand it. We receive a power from it. And it's not a dominating power. It's a power that the Bible says produces love for other people. When you have a love to dominate people, that's a power that comes from the world. When you have a love to serve people, that's a power that comes from God. Because those two don't make sense next to each other. So this is not merely about understanding words, understanding what the gospel is. That's a great start. You'd be surprised how many people I've met that don't actually even know, quote, what the gospel is, but God saved them. Now they're like, what's, the, like, d- explain that. And you show them the arc of the whole Bible. Like, I had no clue. How are they saved? They didn't, it's, clearly, it's about more than words. He says, there's... A power, Jesus himself said in Acts 1, 8, it says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He says, you'll be witnesses of us in this neighborhood, in this county, in this country, in this state, to the ends of the earth. That's how you will witness to me. It's a large charge. But he also said, this is crazy. How many of you think Jesus did the most amazing thing anyone could possibly do on the face of the planet? Raise your hand. Jesus sort of disagrees with you because he says, it's better for you that I go. He says, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit and by that, you'll be able to do greater things than me. Now, he wasn't talking about redemption. No one here saves anyone. I'm not counting my salvation on any of the shoulders of here, people here. You shouldn't put it on mine either. Not talking about salvific work. Talk about the advancement of this gospel. Jesus himself says, you're gonna do greater things than me. How is that possible? Because in the incarnation, he was one guy. God adds humanity, confined generally to the area in which he ministered. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he's not bound by space-time. He's not bound by the things that Jesus submitted himself to in the incarnation. He says, you'll do better things. You'll do bigger things. Jesus is in heaven currently in a glorified body. He's not walking around the campus at Kowloon. He isn't. It's not, it's not diminishing what he's done. I'm taking his words Quite literally, that he says, you're going to do better things. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will be invested in all of you. The the third person of the Trinity. So he says, you'll receive this power when the Holy Spirit has come. So it's, it's not just words, it's also power. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. And he wasn't talking about the non-believers, he was talking about the other disciples. It's kind of an arrogant statement. It's like, hey, you guys are doing all right, but I'm gonna work harder than you. And he says this, 
He says, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but it was the grace of God that was in me. It's not just words. Paul didn't just understand intellectually the gospel. He said, the gospel actually empowers me. It fuels me. It's what's in my tank every day. It's why he got shipwrecked one time and kept going. It's why he got shipwrecked a second time and kept going. It's why he got shipwrecked a third time and got bit by a snake and kept going. Got kicked out of, he got kicked out of every city he darn near went to. What was he fueled by? Self-gratification? Clearly not. Prestige? Clearly not. Wealth? Not anymore. Should have stayed a Pharisee. But he was empowered. It wasn't just that he knew the words. It was that he was empowered. And some of you tonight need to ask for that power from the Holy Spirit that you would no longer simply know the gospel, that you would actually be empowered by it. It says, in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, this speaks of that true belief. It's not that we don't have doubt. Some of us have doubt in our faith, and that's okay. Remember the first time I asked my dad that, I wanted him to say no. Dad, do you ever have doubts in your faith? Of course. I'm like, wait a minute. You're a pastor. You get paid to back up. You, you doubt that? I see you every Sunday. You doubt that? He goes, of course. Who do you think I am? It was just one of those... Of course I have doubt. Doesn't mean I don't believe. Do I have doubt in some aspects? Do things throw me off? Yeah, but where do I go? To the one that knows it all. So it's not that we have no doubt, but it's that we have assurance. And even the things that we don't understand, we have assurance. The gospel comes in power through the Holy Spirit and it gives us assurance. And he says this, he keeps going. Verse six, and it says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord. Personal discipleship had clearly been taking place. He says, you become followers of us and of Jesus. Paul is a fan of saying this, Philippians 3.17. He says, brethren, join in following my example. My example. It's, it's, how many of you would do that right now? Yo, follow my steps. Watch, watch what I do. He says, follow my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. He says it again in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He says, imitate me. Bold. In the Christian church, like, we're honestly like, don't look at me. It's not, it's Jesus. like, just do whatever Jesus did. And you try walking on water, it doesn't work. <laughs> but, but, but Paul knew where he was leading people, so he wasn't afraid to say, follow me. But he was empowered by the gospel. He wasn't perfect, but he was being perfected. Our knee-jerk reaction, even as Bible-believing Christians, is like, don't follow me. Probably because we're doing a lot of messed up stuff. We're not showing you. We're not showing the world our faith. Don't imitate me. No, no. And that gets us off the hook. From wrestling with sanctification, where Jesus says, knock that off. Oh, I'm saved by grace. Yeah, you are. Should you continue in sin so that grace may abound? No. Oh, that sounds legalistic. Sounds like Jesus. You didn't die so you could just keep running back to your vomit. He wants more for us. Paul knew where he was leading them, so he wasn't afraid to say, hey, follow me. Imitate me. Why? Because he had his eyes set on Jesus. He was being sanctified. He wasn't perfect, but he was being perfected, and he wanted people to see that. And there was clearly these personal discipleship had been 
taking place, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having rejected the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. From you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that you so that we do not need to say anything. That's amazing. This church was so potent in its testimony, its living day in, day out, in the, the works that their faith produced, in the labor that their love produced, in the patience that their hope produced, at the intersection of two major historical roads where all these people were coming in, some way, shape, or form, so many were being touched by the testimony of this church that it was literally coming in and heading back out to all areas of the world so that Paul was going places and they knew of this church. Not because of their YouTube or their Twitter or their Facebook or all the stuff that, to be honest, I do for a living. But because of their faith, because of their love, because of their patience. People are like, you go up to Paul, you were at Thessalonica, those guys are great. They're, those are some nice people. I'm not a Christian, but those people took me in. They, 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 they talked about, they were patient in ways, they loved and labored and endeavored. That's how the church spreads the gospel. It's not just words only. It's by seeing the power of its effect on people in your school, in your community, back home with your friends, in the state, in your, in your career. That's where the church gets its most vibrant potency is when people are acting out the things of God. When they are living out, I should say, not acting out, when they are living out, because then the world has to grasp with a living God now. They don't get to write them off. It's just words only when they see his power. And he's commissioned us to be a reflection of that power. So it says that he sounded forth, so it's not just this blaring trumpet, though that has a component. He says also that your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. He says, for they themselves declare concerning us, concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. And so not just preaching truth only, but lives lived in response to that truth. Here's what it looks like. Here's the application. Here's what you want. You want a list? You get it. It's three. He says it. He says, look, he comes out. He says, look, it's not just that this, this trumpet of truth blared out and sounded out. That's, that's not, that's one component, but that's not all of it. It's that then your lives were lived out. Your faith was lived out in love and in patience. And how did people see that? How did they know that, that something had changed, whether you had a radical testimony or a boring one? How did people see he says this, turn, you've turned, you serve, and you're waiting. He says, you, how long you turn, and how you turned to God from idols. We've talked about idols in the past. My little, cute little way of identifying idols in your life. When you wake up in the morning, anything you're more excited about than what Jesus has done for you. I've got mine. Excited about business, excited about motorcycle, excited about snowboarding, excited about vacation, excited about 
wife, kids, these aren't always bad things. They're not always sin things. They could be good things that we've elevated to be God things. But when you wake up and the meditation of your heart is toward X instead of Jesus, there's a chance you have an idol. What are you excited about? It's not that God doesn't want you to be excited about things by any means, but we should be most excited about the main thing. So he says, you've turned from those. You don't worship relationships. You don't worship the high, the drunkenness, the lows, the, the attention, the fame, the fortune, the career, the money, the, the, the grades, the identity. You've turned from those things. And now you face God and he says, and you serve. Here's why here's I got to lovingly hit you. Because you're the cream of the crop. You're like, I like that part. Let's go back to that. 13, tell me I'm the 13% again. Tell me that. I love the way that sounds. All right. So are you serving the church? Or are you just consuming from her? Oh, go back. Right? Right? I don't have time. You don't? You want, you want to play that no time game? Come up with compare schedules. Mine starts at 5.30 tomorrow. Join me. Doesn't end until 10.30. I'm lucky. Straight. Jobs. Families. Kids. Side jobs, ministry, discipleship. You want to go tit for tat on time? I'll do it. Even with you students. You make time for the things that you hold dear, don't you? I made a lot of time for surfing in college. Made a lot of time to play in a band in college. Made a lot of time to sit around talking with my roommates in college. Are you serving? You go back to campus, you talk about this God. Do they see you serving this God? It's a challenge. I got an announcement at the end of the service, a way you can serve. We've locked the doors. We don't even think about leaving. And it says you wait. It says you wait. You wait with anticipation of what? Jesus is coming back. Oh, are you one of those end times guys? Uh, like every Christian since Jesus left? Yes. Now, I'll say this. Before you got saved, few people wanted Jesus to come back, right? You weren't so excited. You get saved? Right? You're kind of like, okay, let's, let's be done with this. Uh, look, I can't wait. I've, I've said this before. I can't wait for the day that prostitution ends. I can't wait for the end of pornography. I can't wait for the end of trafficking and abuse and divorce and pain and cancer and sickness and disease. I can't wait for that. Jesus is going to end it. But I have a patience. Why? Because he had a patience with me. So I want him to have that same patience with others. At some point, he says enough is enough. For sure. But I look forward to Jesus coming back. Don't you? I hope. If not, this is a mark of how people say, man, they live with expectation, like, like something is still going to happen. It's not that we just talk about the cross 2,000-something, 17 years ago when something changed and converted our whole kind of calendar system. Even atheists call it 2017. What do you, what do you think happened about, 20, about 2017 years ago? But it's not that we just talk and look back. They're like, oh, the gospel is that Jesus died for your sins. It's a part of the gospel. It's a huge part of the gospel. It's not the entirety of the gospel. It's that that God rose from the grave, went back up to heaven, and guess what? And he's coming back. Just as the Jews look forward to the coming Messiah, so Christians live looking forward to the coming Messiah. And we're waiting for something. I can't wait for Jesus to come back. It says it right here. I think it's always funny, like when I taught with Zach, it seemed like every time... A chapter mentioned the word wrath, like somehow I was in on it. And Zach's like, oh, go for it, Revelation. Go, go ahead, do your thing. 
says this. He says, you, you turn to God, you serve God, you wait for his son whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. As Christians, you're protected. We are protected by the grace of God, but you need to know that the revelation says that he, because keep in mind, on the cross, he absorbed all the wrath of God. Some of you have noticed that God seemed angry in the Old Testament and not so angry in the New Testament, right? Like He was a mean, wrathful God in the Old Testament. He would just straight kill people. Then Jesus came and it's kumbaya. It's almost like something changed. And Jesus prayed in the garden. He said, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. What was the cup? It wasn't a beard being plucked out of his face. It wasn't getting sucker punched. It wasn't getting a a crown poured on his head, pushed onto his head. It wasn't the scourging that ripped his body like meat. It wasn't getting spit upon. It wasn't It wasn't defecating on himself and urinating on himself as he hung there. It wasn't suffocating. It wasn't even really the crucifixion. He wasn't much facing the crucifixion as he was facing the eternal wrath of God. And he says, take this cup from me. It was the cup of God's wrath. And on the cross, when Jesus became your sin, he didn't look like it, become a metaphor for it or a picture of it. It says he made him who knew no sin to be sin. He became it physically. He became physically your sin. All sin, past, present, future was then poured on him and physically his, his body and some, and I've, I've even contended within the Christian church, like you can't say that. He was the blameless lamb. No sin ever touched him. I said, it's because he was the blameless, he was a blameless lamb. It was the only reason that he could have it put on him. It's the only way that it could work out in atonement. And it says he physically became your sin. And what happened next is what he asked to be removed. But he said, not my will. If there's any other way, God, I'll take it. Jesus said that, full humanity in that moment. He said, but not my will, thy will. And he looked up and he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because in that moment, he became your sin. And God the Father turned from him because he can have nothing to do with sin. And what did he do when Jesus became sin? What did God the Father do with him? He put him to death. He crushed him. He poured out all his wrath on Jesus. God the Father is not angry anymore. He's not angry anymore. People are like, seems like the rules changed. I know. <laughs> Thank goodness. I'm so glad. So that royal wrath got poured out on Jesus. So it makes sense that in Revelation, it says that he holds all that wrath and says he'll return to tread the winepress and the fury and the wrath of Almighty God. God the Father's done. God says, I'm not angry anymore. The only one that can pour out the wrath is the one who holds it, and that's Jesus. And for those of us who are in him, we're protected from that wrath, and that's how he ends. He says, we look forward to that. We, we wake up, and the first thing, man, I do not have wrath coming my way. Sin will find you out, for sure. There's discipline in the Christian walk, but that's not punishment. The punishment will come in the end times for those who say, forget it, Jesus. I'll stand before God on my own accord. Jesus says, if you sin once, it's over. So he says, we turn from God. We serve that living God. And we look forward to seeing Jesus again. That is the way that we minister. Real fast, Paul was encouraged by the faith and the love and the hope of the Christians in Thessalonica. So he writes to encourage them to grow in godliness. Look, we did a lot of doctrine last year, did we not? For those of you that were here, we did Romans. 
We did Hebrews. We did Old Testament. We did New Testament. We did the true gospel. We took a look at false gospels. We did a lot of doctrine last year. This eight-week study is going to challenge us to grow past simply receiving the word of the gospel and moving into the power. He knew that the young church would be exposed to opposition and false teachings. If it didn't mature, that danger will only increase over time. College students, if you don't take this time seriously to mature, it will only get harder. The world has a lot of false gospels and they can't wait to preach them to you. Spiritual maturity is ultimately motivated by a hope and a return in Jesus and it would be fueled by the Holy Spirit. That's the guys that come up. He says, and to do so, a group of young Christians with questions and uncertainties, Paul offers them hope in this letter of Christ's return and provides them comfort in the midst of questions in terms of motivation to godly living. So I wrote this at the very end. If you feel as though you've become, if you ever feel as though you've become stale in your faith, I can't wait to study this book with you. Because Paul offers a remedy to that. He provides a water for the thirsty soul. He provides hope in the midst of suffering and uncertainty. As we turn from idols, we serve him, we look forward to his It's going to be a good eight weeks. Amen? All right, let's pray. Go into a time of worship. Jesus, we do. I don't say that flippantly. We look forward to you coming back, but we know that you're being patient with some who still don't love you. I thank you for that patience that you had with me to come to a saving knowledge of who you are. Thank you for the power that you then give Christians, that you don't simply say you're saved, now figure it out for yourself, that you walk hand in hand beside us. So Jesus, I pray for this body of believers that like the church in Thessalonica that it would be alive and thriving but it would not be complacent when it comes to growth that we would be willing to be challenged in these coming weeks that the students that are here would, would, would not allow the world in this time in their life to rip them from the church to become disgruntled with the imperfections of the church but they would realize that when we turn from our idols that we serve a living God We wait for your return that people will begin to realize that you are true. You are active and living and you love your children. So we thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. We thank you for what you're doing. Jesus, and particularly as well, we thank you for what you still have yet to do and promise to do upon your return. We love you, praise you, like I say almost every week. Cannot wait to see you again. In Jesus' name, amen.